Hello and welcome to Kinect Quest episode 321. I am your critical failure rolling host, Mike Apps, aka Wheels, and with me as always. A charismatic warlock player, uh, David Verney, Family Master. And rolling 20s in Japan, your man, Michael Baker, Gaijin Minogatari. Yeah. Glad, glad someone's getting some nat 20s. <laughs> yeah. So, how's everyone? What have, what have we been up to? I finally started playing Baldur's Gate 3. Yeah, I was going to save that for after uh, when Gaijin getting a word in edgewise, because yes. I get a sense of... Thank you, thank you. Let's say that. Well, let me give me two minutes about Remnant Two then. Okay, uh, but we'll let Gaijin go first. Yes. Okay. <laughs> go ahead, Gaijin. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's summer vacation week. Again, oh, nice. So, um, yeah. So, took the girls out to a water park on Wednesday. We're still sunburned. <laughs> and, uh, oh, that just means it was a good water park trip. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. But yeah, the, the contrast between my collar area and the rest of my chest is. <laughs> Striking. Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, that sounds like a good time. <laughs> yeah. Been up to been up to much else, or um, just you know, typing, writing, video games, which yeah. I have not actually mentioned what I've been playing for the last three weeks. Yeah, so we should probably catch up on that a bit. Okay, so well, three weeks ago, I was on the final <laughs> boss of uh, Romancing Saga Minstrel Song. Yeah. Yeah, beat him, started up a new one, but then just let it drop because I didn't want to move on. Then last week, um, I'd been messing around, or I'd been doing some um, more South Park just to get some good screenshots with my own character in it. Mm -hmm. um, lots of screenshots, very few of them actually usable. Not surprising. <laughs> Um, I, I do have several shots of na random naked people. Not surprising. Yes. Um, so I, I ended up going with one where Butters applies lay on hands and another one where it's just like, okay, I'm fighting the Mongolian horde for some reason. <laughs> sure, why not? Nice. I mean, that, that was actually you. kind of the point because the paragraph right before that was like, yeah, you know, they could, they just get away with some really random diversions and style and format and topic and theme and you know what who knows i mean it's i mean when the graphical standards are this low to begin with you have a lot of leeway to get away with crap so a little bit a little bit oh yeah. also i actually finally got that review out yesterday. excellent so, yeah i think i saw right that now. and then um after that i did some atelier marie nice and out the hard way that while there is no, there does not appear to be a quick button selection for quick save that I could find immediately. There is one for revert to previous save. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the reason I was looking for one in the first place was because I was out of the, I was um, out of the workshop and needed to save due to low battery. And I am terrible at remembering to save in these games to begin with. So, want to guess how much time I lost? Oh, a lot. I don't want to think about it. About a year and a half. Oh, oh yeah, that oh. one's on hiatus for now. I'm just, I'm going to pick it up. Gee, I later. wonder why. Yeah. 
I mean, I remember. I mean, I remembered enough to realize, yeah, I probably should have been implementing some better fairy, um, better uh, fairy workshop controls, um, just to make sure that I was properly making use of their bomb creation. Still, that's just that's the kind of thing that's just demoralizing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's not the first time this has happened to me in a an Italian game, so it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, that yeah. So, um. Right now, I'm about five chapters into Live Alive. Oh, nice. Good choice. Which five have you done so far? Let's see. In order, I've done the Cavemen, the Kung Fu, the Ninja, um, the... I can't believe it's not Street Fighter, <laughs> and currently on Wild West Cowboys, um, who are totally, obviously, not Clint Eastwood in a fistful of dollars. That'd be silly. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, like all those, all, uh, all those are good chapters. All of them have a very distinct flavor. They, it, it's kind of fun how much like Live Alive is just like a lot of little things. <laughs> I'm just like, you know, I'm willing to bet that somebody who's probably named Akatoshi Kawaz who just went around saying, "Hey guys, you want to help me with something? What's your favorite movie?" <laughs> and God, who directed that? Was it Tokita? Possibly. I mean. It's somebody, one of the more interesting guys at Squaresoft, I'm sure. I mean, yeah, it's like we've got, me... if we look at this, we've got Clan of the Cave Bear. We've got random Kung Fu action movie <laughs> number five. We've got some sort of um, um, Akira Kurokawa. Kuros yeah. Yeah, Kurosawa movie. Kurosawa movie. Uh, we've got Clint Eastwood Spaghetti Western. Mm. Um, we've got, I can't. <laughs> Um, I can't believe it's not Akira. We have... Um, I mean, it's been 20 years now. I still re remember quite distinctly that the robots chapter was obviously based on Alien. Mm -hmm. Down to the dialogue in a few instances. Mm -hmm. Of course, the the uh, present day chapter is basically Street Fighter as an RPG. Mm -hmm. That was fun. So... It's pretty short. Yeah, a lot of, a lot yeah. of them... Like they're highly variable in terms of length. Some of them, it's just like, oh, this is yeah. you know maybe an hour, and some of them are like more like three or four. The robot one was probably <laughs> I mean, my favorite. The, so wild, the Wild West chapter is specifically designed so that once you get through the introductory story sequence and one or two battles, you have approximately eight minutes to get everything organized. Yeah, it's a really interesting structure that would really only work for a game that you know isn't terribly like. It wouldn't take that mm -hmm. much to restart that chapter if you were really dissatisfied with how it turned out. Hey, the the bounty hunter who's temporarily on your side for this explicitly says that you, you better save this memory in your heart. And I hope you know what that means. <laughs> Live Alive is great. Uh, yeah. So I, yeah. I looked it up. Director was Takashi Tokita, who mm -hmm. prior to this, uh, his bigger his uh, most important credit was probably that he was the lead designer and scenario writer on FF4. Hmm. And then directly after, he would end up taking on directorial duties on Chrono Trigger. So, real hot streak for him. <laughs> it's yeah. one of my interesting games I've ever played. Um... Yeah, I vaguely remember playing... You're, you're way, you're way cutting out. You're, you're real quiet. Hello. There we go. I'm I'm trying this on the new laptop, so there may be some issues. Gotcha, gotcha. 
I'm trying to be loud. Yeah, yeah, you're you're fine now. It's, I think you were just like stepped away, uh, like away from the mic a bit for a second, but I turned my head. <laughs> ah, that'll do it. <laughs> but yeah, it's certainly one. Um, I played it 20 years ago when it was first available on emulation and hmm. didn't do quite so well. Partly because the translation kind of left out certain things, like um, some explanations of what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, that fan translation actually eventually got a huge revision. I'm not surprised. But yeah, I, I know I've made it through it maybe three chapters in the, for the fan translation. Starting with Cavemen mm -hmm. and Kung Fu, so I already knew exactly what I was doing with those. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I remember absolutely failing the cowboy chapter. Mm, that makes sense. Looked, I didn't know what I was doing, and I ended up in a battle with eight different cowboys. Oh, boy. Yeah. <sighs> but yeah, Live Alive, always a good choice. Yeah. Big Live Alive fan. As, as, um, as it is, Odo did take me out last night with his Gatling gun because I found out the hard way that the boulders on the battlefield do not block that thing. Oof. Also, it looks like yeah. just failed to roll very hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm. Let's try this again. Oh, you, uh, one of the nice oh, things is that when you get points of inspiration, you do get to reuse those. Yay. Now, this is a much that, easier um, check. <laughs> the last game that. on my playing list is the one I can actually talk about now because the embargo's over. Hooray! I, I do need to finish actually writing up something for this, so you know I'll just sounding board time. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a game called Affogato, mm -hmm. as in the coffee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so your main character is a witch who is running a coffee shop. Mm -hmm. Yep. And um, as part of her contracted duties, she is basically she runs uh, freelance exorcisms on the side. Yeah. You know. Just to make a little extra cash. Oh, no, no, I mean, no, that's her entire purpose of being in town. The, the coffee <laughs> yeah, shop is just yeah. to, keep her, to keep her afloat. Uh, plus, mm. she loves coffee. Um, mm. So it's so take this premise, um, and then the, the exorcisms are basically um, tower assault games. Huh. Where you're, uh, yeah, instead the opposite of tower defense. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Where you're running your little characters that are all um, basically the personifications of the major arcana from the tarot deck. Yeah. And just um, each one with different ability sets and just running them mm -hmm. through the maze and to take out all the demons and clear at things out properly. Um, and then combine that with a very persona like um, calendar system and um, variation on social links. Hmm. As it, as in, it's to the point where I could tell that this development studio, the guys really liked Persona 5. Not terribly surprising, but interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely not Persona in any way, shape, or form, but the, stylistically, it is... You can feel it. Yeah. It definitely takes some cues. That'll be that's that's interesting. It'll be 
I'll be interested in hearing or seeing what you end up writing up about it. Yeah. It's definitely a cute game, and it has some interesting plot beats. So there is that. That's good. Yeah, the, some, some, of the, some of the plot beats feel very, very much like something you might have found in Persona 5 as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely not the same kinds of things, but a similar vibe going mm. on. Got that mood going on. Does, does this fight start going very poorly for you, Wheels? No, it's going fine until the character I'm trying to save got murdered in the middle of the battle. Like, completely murdered? That's pretty rare. Yeah, she was dead. Huh, usually they... Huh. So not, not plot-related murder? No. No, no. Not too bad. That'd uh, be more interesting. I guess maybe she doesn't get the three death throws because she's not a party member yet. Probably. The fireman center here's your friendly reminder to play 30XX. I played it before it was officially released a bunch. First time without mods and the second time with a Mega Man mod. Uh, been playing anything else, or...? I think that's everything up to this point, um, unless you count the the demo for the Girl Genius game. Oh, that finally... Yeah, they've got, a, they've got the demo out on Steam. Hmm. Any good? Uh, they, picked a, they picked the perfect chapter from the graphic novel to adapt to a video game, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to think of a good way of describing Castle Heterodyne in uh, like an adventure <laughs> corner. Something like, yes, um, this this massive edifice may be gothic in outward appearance, but its attitude is completely brutalist. <laughs> so, whereas most sane warlords would make their fortress out of masonry and and cement, the Heterodynes appear to have preferred death traps and pure unmitigated spite. <laughs> I mean, that's fitting. That's we'll call much, that fitting. Yeah, that pretty much <laughs> describes the castle. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's. I think it's um, either volume five or volume six of the graphic novel and where she's trying to take back the castle. Mm-hmm. The castle's been broken for so long that its governing intelligence has developed massive multiple personality complexes. As you do. And Yeah, I mean, it, it was not the nicest intelligence to begin with but now thankfully it hates its they hate themselves they hate each other almost as much as they hate the squishy humans attempting to fix the place that's uh it's good to keep them distracted like that yeah plus it should be noted that the entire repair crew is made up of death row inmates whose um capital whose uh executions were commuted to a uh, fairly short life term in the castle most of them thinking now that they would have preferred the execution. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, I'll have to look into that. I'm going to have to write up an adventure corner for that one sometime, too. So, Affogato yeah. first, then, then Girl Genius. Makes sense. Uh, we have stalled long enough. We must face our dungeon and dragony fate. I talk well, about you can start that, and I will start putting up some laundry. Good so, idea. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. Yeah, let's let let's let we do some remnant, and then and then it'll be Baldur's Gate time. Okay. Okay. 
I mean, not that much to say. I've been doing, going through another campaign, helping a friend with a, his go through and fighting some new bosses and uh, some interesting ones. Like there's a musical puzzle that was pretty cool. And there's a boss where you get an interesting choice where you meet a, seems to be a god for that world. It's like a wolf creature that's been corrupted by the root. So it's got like all weird rooty growths on it. Weird and spooky. And it gives you the choice. Either kill this doe or you have to fight him. Although I looked it up afterwards because we healed the doe and then fought him. Apparently there's a third choice where you can kind of just let the doe die because it's injured and fight the boss and apparently that was the best option because you get a new gun from that (laughs) that the other choices don't get. So That seems uh, amoral though. For sure. But the loots. Gross. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, just playing more of that, it continues to be very good. Uh, only thing is, in my second playthrough, I have encountered a bug. Which... Oh, no. Well... So, there's a boss where you get onto, it's in the futuristic world, you get onto a train, and then it's supposed some voice is supposed to talk to you, and you have to fight like waves of enemies on this train. And that's kind of the boss fight. There's some boss fights like this, that in this game and the previous game where instead of like <laughs> fighting one enemy, you're fighting a wave of enemies, which are pretty cool. Uh, but nothing happens when I go on the train. It just kind of endlessly loops there. So um, I'm going to have to start looking and seeing if there's some kind of fix for that. Yeah. Kind of sucks. Other than that, having a great time. Yeah. Uh, but more importantly, I finally started up Baldur's Gate because everyone is playing it, so I figured it was probably finally time. <laughs> everyone was doing it. I just wanted to be popular. Yes. Uh, I might be tempted, but I don't know if I have any laptops capable of playing it right now. Yes. Uh, but <laughs> Yeah. So I, ha- I don't think I played it with a controller at all previously in early access i think it, uh, i think it took a while for controller support to come in on the yeah. early access anyway. uh, but that's pretty much primarily how i've played it so far and i haven't really gotten to much that i didn't play in early access yeah it's, it's really well tuned for a controller so yeah so much so much that it feels better to me that like that way like i started <laughs> to try playing a mouse and keyboard and i'm just like how the fuck do i turn the camera <laughs> in, uh, I appreciate how smoothly you can jump from like very old school Baldur's Gate style camera to like Dragon Age style camera. Yeah, uh, I definitely prefer a Dragon Age style camera. Yeah, same. But it's it's very it's very good at uh, moving in and out, sweeping in and out uh, as needs be. Looks like you're playing a tiefling sorcerer? Yes. Hmm. Yes, I modeled her after one of the characters from the D&D movie. Except oh, yeah, I never saw it. You should. That movie's very good. It's on uh, yeah. Plus. Due, due to misadventure and happenstance, I saw the old Dungeons & Dragons film in theaters. Oh, so did I. So did as, I. As, as not a good film. I'm still... No. I'm still a little peeved that 
I couldn't watch Dungeons and Dragons, the new one in theaters because of uh, incapable of matching my schedule to it properly. And there were only so many showings available to begin with. That's a shame. Um, also, it's it left theaters within two weeks or after two weeks. Oof. Yeah. Should have, they, should have, uh, they should have localized it as a Lodos War spinoff. <laughs> Might have worked. But yeah, um, there were like four <laughs> different theaters in my area that had it. None of them had it at a time where I could actually get to them. And only one of them had it in English. Ever. Ah, oh, that's rough. Um, and then two weeks later, Super Mario movie came out and they just pushed everything out in favor of that. Yeah, that ate everything's lunch. Which, which, I mean, this was... This, Grant, this was first week of May, Golden Week holiday for Mario Movie. Mario Movie mm. is still in the theater now. <laughs> it's a big flick. Yeah. Big one. Yeah. Did well. Go figure, but yeah, three months in the theater, there's, it's a bit much even for Japan. <laughs> uh, was I going to say something about it? But yeah, uh... It looks like you're you're still uh, pretty early on. Uh, how much Five E have you played, Wales? Uh, a fair amount. Although I've been mostly playing Pathfinder in recent memory. So gotcha. It, it's gotcha. not fresh in my mind. Yeah, it's it's been interesting because like it's it's mostly pretty faithful. Although I do appreciate that they just were like, oh, you have a bunch of other characters you're trying to curry favor with. We don't need you to also be worrying about alignment on top of that. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, uh, I've been seeing it described as very reflective of your normal play experience, where nobody actually cares about alignment, and yet they're trying to sleep with everyone else. Yeah, that is definitely a thing that can happen. I uh, I made inroads with one character who is interested in sleeping with me, but at the same time is physically not currently capable of it, and basically said in one of the weirdest conversations I've ever had in a game, feel free to sleep with someone, uh, with whoever you want, until I am capable of doing so. Which was one of the weirdest conversations I've ever had with a video game character. It's a weirdly I, horny no, game. I mean, I, I, I played, um, <laughs> I, I played Stick of Truth within the last two weeks. Uh, I can say I've had weirder experiences. Oh, you've definitely had weirder, but I have not played that game. So, for me, this was just like, huh? I didn't expect Dungeons and Dragons to be this horny, although I probably should have. <laughs> like I said they seem to have taken the actual play style of many of their players into account. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a very more good... than you would have expected. It's it's a very good like D and D campaign like story like the notion of like starting off with like the strong impetus of like oh you all got you didn't meet in a bar you all uh fucking got caught on a fucking mind flare ship hurtling through uh, between planes and mm -hmm. all of you are connected by the fact that you have a mind flare tadpole threatening to turn you into a mind flare if you don't figure out what's going on with it and get it removed. Is one of those planes supposed to be Dragonlance? Or is it just uh, quite possibly. Just dragon, <laughs> dragon plane? I mean, it could be. I haven't actually, I don't know enough about Dragonlance okay. to say for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, Fireminer asks, remember the pretty bad Dragonlance animated film? I do not. It yeah, I did not see like that. That's a good thing. Let's not. Yeah. 
but yeah, I've been. I, I yep. did. I was gonna say um, I did read the novel "Villains by Necessity." If that just came to mind. <laughs> read that one. Nah. No, it was a mid late nineties parody of D and D style fantasy novels. Oh, that's cute. Very well done parody of D and D style fantasy novels, to the point where um, in one of the later chapters, there's some ob <laughs> hilariously obvious um, jokes being made at Dragonlance. Mm -hmm. yeah. Where it's like you can look at these two characters and you recognize the Majeri brothers. <laughs> it's a bit of a wink and a nudge, but yeah, we know exactly who these two are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I've I've been uh, I've been I've been really enjoying it. It's very good at giving you like a lot of sort of bits of reactivity. Uh, one of the like one of the things I appreciated was that I rolled a warlock, and one of the early party members is also a warlock, and it's uh, because of that I had like certain dialogue options that I could get because it's like, oh yeah, I know I know about like fucking warlock packs. <laughs> so like certain dialogue options that only happen because of that. There's a lot of like things that uh will the the game will react to in little ways, which is nice. Uh speak with animals is a surprisingly useful uh skill in this. Uh, Apparently if you turn into a cat you can actually walk through a lot of gated areas. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, spaces where if you can turn into an animal of some sort, or if you can do, if you have any spell that physically makes you smaller, there's uh, places you can only access if you have those. Uh, speak with dead can get a lot of use in certain contexts. Uh, just a lot of the kinds of utility uh, spells that tend to have, uh, that, that tend to be very useful in the tabletop and kind of not super useful in the uh, in simulations, they they actually work fairly well in this, which is nice. That's actually uh, kind of rare because that's usually the thing that a, a live dungeon master has over anything computer operated. Yeah, that's just being the, able to roll with some of the stuff. Yeah, the game the game is very good at having some sort of interesting reaction to uh to to whatever you would want it to be able to react to which has been nice there's a lot of uh situations where like because of how the environment is constructed like you can't walk to some place but there are like situ little places where it's like oh you can make a jump here and uh explore places that you wouldn't have thought the game would actually let you go uh in, in other words the developers obviously ran their own campaigns from time to time Oh yeah, definitely. They're they're very good at understanding the appeal of like uh that a lot of RPGs serve the appeal of like make your numbers bigger and steamroll over like the enemy that you don't like, whatever. And this this has a very good like insight into the appeal of like weird solutions, strange solutions. One of the things that I can only imagine took forever to implement when they first started doing these with the Re Divinity Originals and one is just the way that most environmental objects you can 
interact with, whether that be like lighting them on fire or moving them with mage hand, that sort of thing to like have access to some like non-traditional tactics uh, in combat. Like there's some fights where it's like, oh, there's a chandelier up here. So light it up and then uh, fucking knock it, uh, knock it off the ceiling. So it crashes on everything. Uh, there was a fight that I had where uh, the the enemy had a character I was trying to protect in a cage and had lit the cage on fire uh, with the idea of like, well, you'll have to kill me fast enough to protect them. And then it's just like, you have the, you can just reach into your pack and throw a bottle of water at it and that will douse the fire so there's no more time limit on that fight. <laughs> It's 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 good at reacting the way you would want it to react and uh, giving you a lot of different ways to uh, and also just in conversations like uh, if you're if, if there's something that makes sense for your character to be able to use as their like avenue. Uh, through a conversation, the game's pretty good at letting you use it. So, like, since I'm already heavily specced into charisma, I have a lot of different, like, normal persuade options. But they're all it, it knows to make sure to let you do things like arcana and history rolls, uh, where it's appropriate to get you information that you might not otherwise have. It's uh, it's very good. But, well, any any thoughts on your end wheels? <laughs> Um, <laughs> too early to say too much, but uh, yeah, I'm certainly very impressed so far. Like, um, <laughs> I don't know, uh, combat and everything <laughs> seems great. Um, curious to see what other characters you can get in your party for sure. Yeah. Um, you haven't gotten my favorite yet, and you won't for a bit. Uh, Gale's really good, though, and he has, like, an interesting personal quest that you're going to start, like, he will inevitably be bringing up reasonably shortly. Uh, but he's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. And I'm currently doing, like, Shadowheart's per first personal quest. It seems like most of them have multiple personal quests, which is... Nice. Uh, I guess. I guess the only thing I would say so far is I'm curious to see what it looks like once you get more into like forgotten realmy things. Because at the start here, <laughs> it mostly feels like the start of Original Sin two flavored mm -hmm. in Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm not really not necessarily saying that totally is a bad thing, but I'm not really feeling anything forgotten realmsy yet. Mm -hmm. So. Which is understandable because you uh, you start on a planes traveling spelljammer ship essentially, uh, so um, I don't want to say too much more until I get further in the game. But uh, I have to go to the Underdark. Please tell me the Underdark is in the game, please. It is. I have to. Like, when I said I have to go to the yes. Underdark, I wasn't making a joke. Yes. I have to go to the Underdark. Okay. <laughs> uh, good Would then. you? Could you imagine a Forgotten Realms game that does not include the Underdark at this point? 
Uh, I don't <laughs> think it was in the first Baldur's Gate. Yeah, I don't think it is. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Or Icewind Dale. Fucking Icewind Dale. <laughs> well, that one, Icewind Dale was the entire point of the game there. Hmm. So. Uh, that does remind me that, uh, on a related note, because I'm sick in the head, uh, I also started playing uh, Baldur's Gate 1 Enhanced Edition on my Switch. Oh, really? How's that going for you? Uh, it is a valiant effort to make that game work on a controller, and I think it honestly works well enough. Uh, the biggest thing that works valiantly. Uh, the biggest thing about uh that I've been noticing is just like remembering how just like the the only way I've been able to describe Baldur's Gate one is like A D and D two point five is like a strong argument about why you don't compose math problems while drunk. <laughs> because there's so <gasps> much Natural Twenty Oh yeah. Critical success. Uh Guilt is the proof. Oh, okay. Okay. Did you ask for something you shouldn't have? No, I'm <laughs> peering into his mind. Oh, he knows. Oh, of course he disapproves. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> but I rolled you, a natural 20. You broke into his mind and you're like, well, he disapproves. It's like, yes, of course he disapproves. <laughs> if he wanted to tell you about it, he'd have told you. Uh, never mind. Uh, moving on. These but, are the yeah, hilarious like, things that this game lets you do. And I look yeah. forward to most of this. And I'm also pretty sure I'm going to end up killing this guy. Just a feeling. And again, and again, this being D&D 5th oh. um, edition, hilarious things usually mean some sort of war crime. Uh, just a few. Not always. Um, just a few war crimes between friends, yes. But yeah, what I was going to say was like, uh, one of the things that like completely threw me, like playing, because uh, it's very funny because it's like I'm playing a very nice 5e game next to like a clunky old 2.5e game, and it's just a full reminder of like how much, how, how weird the systems are when you go back to that. Like I was uh, just like losing my mind having to remember the rules for exceptional strength. Which for, I, for I think anyone, I saw you commenting about this earlier, like on Twitter or something. Yeah, I, for for anyone that didn't, uh, for anyone that didn't play uh, AD and D Second Edition and before, there were there was this truly baffling set of rules around strength, but only for fighters and only if they were already at the highest level of normal strength. Because pre flash ninety nine, yeah pre pre third edition, uh, you rolled three d six for your stats rather than a d twenty, and mm -hmm. the rules as written said that you just what you you rolled strength and then dex and then uh, constitution and then down down the traditional stat line, and you just took whatever you got, and what that meant real early on is that you got a lot of characters that might not actually have good enough stats to qualify for basically any class. Yep. And I, I actually had some fun with this in a, a pizza princess story. So I'll tell you about that one later, but do go on. Yeah. We'll have to, later. I'll ask you to bring that up when we're plugging, uh, because I'm interested yeah, yeah. in this, but, 
but you had so so but if you rolled an 18 on strength and were a fighter you had the option of rolling again and there was no reason to ever not take this roll because it couldn't make you worse it could only you would only ever be stronger having that 18 slash even if it was 18 slash zero one you were still manifestly and markedly stronger than if you were just 18. But yeah, for only for strength and only for fighters, there was exceptional strength, which was like split into like five tiers. Uh, and it was based on like percentile. You had like from from zero one to zero zero, because zero zero represented a hundred. And like they gave you just wild bonuses on attacks. <laughs> and it's nonsensical. And if you could ever what, what was even sillier? Was that if you ever got an item, a magic item that like increased your strength past eighteen, this entire system went away. Uh, it it was it was absurd. It was an absurd system. It was bizarre complication. Like when when you think of crazy aspects of how the math works in real old D anD D, like to hit armor class zero takes up all the discussion because everyone has to deal with it and it sucks so obviously Shadow but, just this wizard so I'm going to have to kill her sorry the, you, you don't get any other clerics mhm 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 also wizards suck um wow, <sighs> wow. but what i was going to say was but like there's so much like Addlehead math in in two and a half, and you—it's it, such a weird thing. I I was like completely flummoxed to remember the division between dual classing and multi-classing that two and a half still has. <laughs> like they finally threw that away with the third edition and made it so that multi-classing was for everyone, and it was just like you can take levels in other classes if you, uh, if you meet certain requirements. Uh, but in two and a half e, you still had dual classing, which only humans did, and required you to like spend uh, to declare that you were done leveling up one class, and then level up from level one as the other class until you at least matched your first class in order to get all of your class features back. And it's bizarre. And then not only non-humans were allowed to multi-class, which required you to declare what multiple classes you were at character creation. And there was like just a list of what character, what multi-classes you could be. And they, like, it was a much more sane thing to actually parse out when you were doing it because it was like, oh, this just means that it takes longer for you to level up because you have to level up both classes uh, at once. But it was just like, this is weird. Why? Why did you do this? Why would it ever work like this? And the answer is that, like, D D Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, especially Second Edition, when they had kind of decided to sunset the the, the basic, basic expert. expert. Oh, I forget echo. what the rest of the. Yeah, we're getting a small echo. Uh, oh, it seems to have gone. But the basic expert. I forget what the rest of the Beckmay set is called, but once they'd sunset that uh, and just decided to do AD&D, they were fully committed to just like, this, this, this game should be complicated and number-heavy in the worst way imaginable. And 
they they really needed that simplification, even if uh, third mm-hmm. edition has all sorts of its own weird problems. The point but, where they had to make a three and a half edition. Yeah, it turns yeah. out that haste is really strong. Uh, <laughs> yeah, go figure. Uh-huh. But yeah, uh, but yeah. So so I've been playing that, and that's been kind of interesting to play. And I'm I'm not beating myself up about playing it on easy mode because I just I, the 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 number crunching is not super interesting to me. The part where it's like a view into the history of this subgenre of RPG yeah. is interesting to me. But like. I honestly will take to my grave that real time with pauses is like the worst compromise they could have made. And one of my favorite things about Baldur Ga- Baldur's Gate three is that they just made a turn based game. Yeah. Like, uh, that's... I I don't think that's an aspect of the game that anyone remembers fondly. I think it's all about the story and the characters. Yeah, and the thing that's fascinating about Baldur's Gate one is that it's still very clearly in the mold of like the gold box games and that kind of RPG where like characters mm-hmm. in Baldur's Gate 1 have more backstory than those would have but they're they're clearly more meant to be statistic like th- they fill roles like uh I remember once he- reading uh that uh, one of the first characters that most parties will get, Imoen the Thief, was not in the game until very late when they realized that there was no good lined thief. And that like that that if that meant that players who wanted to run a good aligned party were just kind of shit out of luck for thieves. So they just hastily inserted Imoen into the game so that there would be you wouldn't have to generate a character to do that. And you you can tell that the attitude at the time was just sort of that, and that's part of why like character death being what it was in second edition and earlier, it didn't like they didn't try to deviate from it because it's like well these characters like people kind of like them but they're not super important you know it's like we had some fun having like Minsk have like really uh, having him have like arranged things to say that we kind of, kind of regrettably imply happened because of a head injury um, or you have like you know you, you have characters that people like but you know they're they're very limited in scope they you can't really have conversations with them they won't bring up conversations with you uh, they basically will have quests that you they give you when you first uh, meet them and then they, they mostly don't say much because they're they exist to fill roles in your party and the dialogue is context for why they're there. And then you can tell that with two they had realized that wait, people got really attached to a bunch of these people. So that's when like there it's fascinating to see that evolution because that's when it's suddenly like, oh, this is uh we're we're gonna do all of these. They they cut down on the number of characters. The absolute number is down by at least ten in the vanilla game. Uh, but they they cut down on a ton of them so that like the ones that were there could have like personal quests and character arcs and dialogue that they didn't have in Baldur's Gate One because 
they'd realized that people really got attached to them. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting to see how the genre kind of moves from there because you have you you move from uh, Baldur's Gate One, uh, which has you know several dozen characters, most of which don't say much. Uh, they're mostly differentiated by class, stats, and alignment. To within like three games, you reach uh, Kotor, where every character has like huge amounts of dialogue trees and a personal quest and uh, very specific points where they will like, if you make a decision they particularly disagree with, they can leave the party. Like they they really very quickly zeroed in on that being what made people like the games. <laughs> I was going to say KOTOR, Knights of the Old Republic, right? Yeah, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, which was... I was going to say, I mean, Star Wars is a... I mean, it was already a, an IP where even the most minor character in the background had some sort of backstory. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you follow the, the evolutionary line from Baldur's Gate 1 to Baldur's Gate 2 to Neverwinter Nights to KOTOR, and you can see that emphasis growing, especially because KOTOR is still on a D&D &D system. Mm -hmm. Uh... It's just, you know, it's it's slightly further obfuscated because they've already had to make tons of allowances for the fact that uh, it's, you know, it's a Star Wars game now. But, like, the it, it's still using Dungeons & Dragons underlying rules. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, they've, they've tossed out a lot of things that are... You know, particularly aggressive, that particularly made investing in the characters harder, like those really aggressive death rules. The aggressive death rules are still in Baldur's Gate 2, and they're a huge sticking point because they can break character quests. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because I, I can only assume that this was a consequence of if the character died, there wasn't a way for the game to be sure whether the like it, it immediately failed and there wasn't like a point where the game was going to be constantly rechecking is the character alive again is the quest unfailed because the character is alive again there's no point where it's going to check so when the character died even if you revived them any character quest with them was broken <laughs> which is really obnoxious uh but yeah, it's it's fascinating to like how much uh, to to the point where like you can find uh, like reminiscences by people who worked at Bioware uh, over the years, saying that like Bioware Bioware very quickly realized that the thing that got people that made people care so much is like Bioware games are not core plot based; they are about characters. <laughs> Like that's what keeps people coming back. Uh, also, I, I I will not be acknowledging the jizz players at the Cantina Fire Miner. <laughs> but yeah, so so that was that was a very long tangent about the evolution of computer RPGs that I'm sure I will waste time on event again eventually. But we should probably hit a couple of these questions yeah. uh, other than to say Baldur's Gate 3 is really really good. Um, we have a few things in the chat. Um, hello yeah. Smoking Joe Gamer and Hero Harmony thank you for lurking although Joe is clearly yeah. not lurking. 
Fireminer asked about prestige classes. I think that was in reference to Baldur's Gate 3. Yeah, I haven't gotten... I think that the campaign only goes to level 12. I'm not sure how useful prestige classes would be in that context. Not sure. Oh yeah, speaking of weird things about Baldur's Gate 1, that's a campaign that only goes to level 7. Yikes. (laughs) It is a low-level campaign, which is why, like, usually when people are talking about, like, good classes to go with, uh, Baldur's Gate 2 with, they recommend the fighter, because like even though fighters are worse than mages in most editions, I mean, if you're not getting past level 7, you're not going to get to appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. that's that's a, uh, That was just something that was weird to me, like realizing, oh, this, this campaign is level 7. <laughs> it's a re- Relatively speaking, this is a really low-level campaign. My characters keep slipping on Grease. It sucks. Yeah, you should... Yeah, oh god. Like, Grease is really strong. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know anything about... I'm at level 5, which is a really strong level in 5e, I'm remembering. Mm-hmm. Like, that's it, when it fighters was, get... It was originally too, and I'm speaking obviously from a wizard player, but that's when you get... Uh, level three spells, which are particularly yeah. powerful, because that's your fireballs, your lightning bolts, and things like that, that really start to ramp up the, like the level you, of a wizard. Yeah, you start seeing a lot of like, you know, like damage that starts approaching like fifty or sixty if you were to get like the ideal roll. Yeah. Uh, but like that's also when fighters get their second attack. It's when. Uh, Warlock's Eldritch Blast gets a second hit, which is really strong, especially if you're uh, using hexes that can, you know, get you you know, a very strong attack that has, like, wild amounts of range. Uh, so... You can find find numerous websites dedicated to just how well you can break Eldritch Blast in any given game. Oh yeah, Eldritch Blast is nuts, and it's the one it's the one thing that like gets people to have characters that have like one level of warlock. Because I think uh, two two works better because there's like something you can unlock. Yeah, that's when you get like your first uh, invocation, and I think that gets you agonizing blast. That was the one, yes. Which is of course one of the first invocations anyone takes because. Uh, it lets you add your charisma modifier, yeah, and then and then the rest is just stuff that like what what seems useful to me right now because you can swap out your invocations with every level anyway. So it's like if something mm-hmm. doesn't end up working, it's like eh, I can swap that out for something better. But uh, yeah, so every class gets something really good around level five in five e. So I'm I'm in a good place at this point. Um, but it also means that, like, I'm still in Act 1, so I would imagine that if if the level cap is actually 12, uh, it's definitely not a game you need to worry about, like, grinding in at any point, because you're mm-hmm. going to hit the cap long before you actually finish it. <laughs> Which is nice in its way, because it means that, like, you actually get to use your the highest level powers the game is going to give you. But... Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Baldur's Gate 3, it's really good. Um, Do I punch this human in the face? 
How many? You're a sorcerer with what for strength? Uh, good point. <laughs> yeah, like that's my dump stat. I'm dealing with an eight in it. Uh, I do like option number five. What's option number five? Oh, tiefling. He's human. Mouse comes as naturally as breathing. Just show him you're the better man. I do appreciate that. Like, I was thinking that the game will probably give you a number of dialogue options for this because, like, the opening conflict is all about like druids versus tieflings. Mm. <laughs> but. Uh, Smoking Joe Gamer says, ever have multiple characters permanently die from a fireball or lightning bolt or get exploded by a critical hit backstab? Oh, wow, this guy's still being an ass. <laughs> you shouldn't be surprised. I don't think this guy actually survived the fight for me, so I don't know what he says. <laughs> <laughs> like... I was I was still getting my bearings on the combat at that point, and so like a bunch of these weird fuckers died. Um, <laughs> uh, see, and Smoking Joe Gamer says I respect Asterian into a monk slash rogue. It's an interesting combo. Mm. But yeah, so Ben been having. A, very good time with that. Let's hit some of these questions that were left in the podcast section. Okay. Back when the metaverse was the hot thing, I sometimes heard this discussion. Should the industry outright refuse these fraudulent schemes? Or should individuals just take the money and run away with it? In other words, was Chuck Norris justified when he found us in his performance in Crime Boss, Rock A City? Uh... I mean, I think that there's like uh, there's a difference between giving a shitty movie performance and contributing to a worse society, and I would argue that things like crypto and the metaverse are contributing to a worse society, yeah. uh, as well as just being bad gold rushes, because it's very much like anyone with any sort of pattern recognition could tell this is going to go very badly, and you're like you're juicing the stocks for next quarter and then like inevitably you're going to have to pay that back in some fashion just by virtue of the fact that eventually the bottom falls out on this stupid grift and suddenly uh, everyone is either broke or going to jail and sometimes both. So, you know. Not necessarily the person who started it. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just like, it, it's a high risk venture that has essentially no redeeming qualities. And like, in general, if it's just like, you know, making a, you know, a dumb schlocky movie or like, uh, you know, work, working a job of little consequence, it's like, yeah, sure, take the paycheck. But that, that, somewhat goes away when the question is like take part in essentially a weird uh subcultural pyramid scheme mm -hmm. uh, let's see uh how many people here have actually watched a chuck norris film or tv show the man was only uh okay when he was a side character in a feature film or a main character in an assembled cast if you really want 
some good 90s uh, TV cop shows, watch Martial Law. The only thing I've seen him in in any meaningful capacity was as an antagonist in Bruce Lee's Way of the Dragon, where he serves about as much purpose as he needs to. <laughs> yep. He's a guy He's a guy for fighting Bruce Lee. <laughs> so we, um, I remember watching a couple episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger back in the mm-hmm. 90s. Very much something you would throw on. I mean, uh, I, I was also I also grew up in Oklahoma, and he was a native son. So, ah, naturally. Yeah, so I so I, I probably saw more of his stuff than most people would have. Recently, mm-hmm. so. I think it was um, which what was the movie series with uh, where the main draw was like every single action movie star that they could put together? Expendables. I think Expendables. I think was it Expendables three where he shows up and he actually makes a, t- a Chuck Norris joke and is about himself. I assume it must like, have been three. That feels like a three thing. Yeah, he, he he only showed up in one of them. I think it was the third one, and he actually commented that one time a rattlesnake bit him and it took the snake three days to die. <laughs> Man, that would have been like 2016. It's wild that they were still doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah just, just one of those things. Just like what the. Uh, you know, so, some some things, some things, people just people just would not let go of. Let's see, okay. Uh, there's phoning it in, and there's uh, unable to work up to the standard, like Sean Connery voicing from Russia with "Love the Game." Which other game character? That the first moment you hear them talk, tell the voice actor is definitely too old for the character. Huh. Also, I want to point out that From Russia with Love Game is tragically historically significant because it's one of Sean Connery's last performances before he just completely retired. For or after League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? After, by about five years. Wow, okay, because I thought he'd actually just retired from completely after League. He's only in that game and one other, like, some random documentary in the tens, and then it's... Never like you know he was he was basically done after league, but they I guess sent him dump trucks full of money to be in that from Russia with Love game. <laughs> yeah, because he was in the original movie. So yeah, he, yeah, like, it's just one of those things like, that like wasn't he like suffering from senility or something by that point? He, I mean, he had that, there dem- were there were definitely reasons why he retired after league. Yeah, well, he he was he had dementia certainly by the twenty tens that. Uh, from Russia with Love Game is like 2006, so it's unclear mm-hmm. what his status was at the time. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's had a but yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of because like usually when I think of actors who are just obviously too old for the role at this point, I'm mostly thinking of like TV shows that have been running for forever. Uh, like, whenever I hear, like, a modern episode of The Simpsons, all I can think is, like, God, Dan Castellaneta and Julie Kavner sound so old now. They sound so old. Uh, and I don't blame them. They're in their 70s. I can't, I cannot blame them that the March of Time has, has done this, but it is one of those things that mm-hmm. is distracting. Um, yeah. And, I mean, for some, I mean, for some things, it's just, they have no other way of getting cash at this point. Yeah. Or, I, I or look, look at the uh, the final year of Bruce Willis. Oof! Yeah, those are those those got ugly. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, to the point where the, the Raspberry Awards actually rescind or retracted their Bruce Willis category for the year after it was revealed. Yeah, because as it turned out, he, he as it turned out, that was not really a fair thing to blame on him. Nope. <laughs> no, and honestly, I, I don't blame him for taking a million dollars per cameo for a year and then also uh, licensing his image and voice to uh, uh, like an AI type thing. Um, mm-hmm. At this point, at this point, that's Just best take legacy the money. to leave behind massively. Just reading up on everything that was going on, I'm like, oh man, yeah, I'd be in a very similar situation there. Yeah. Apparently, he's apparently he's uh, de- his his uh, physical state's degrading faster than they expected to. Yeah, yeah, Sad. it's not it's not being properly taken care. Of. Like, even if it is being properly taken care of, there's only so much you can do. But if it's not being properly yeah. taken care of, it's real bad. Or something like um, Raul Julia in Street Fighter. Yeah. And he gave us all on that flick. I, mean, I, I think we've mentioned why he took that movie. In the yeah, first yeah, place, we right? know why he took that job. We've talked about it a few times, but it is one of those things yeah. where it's like, even though he was doing it for the money, he sure he sure gave it his all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, let's say he wasn't actually doing it for the money; he was doing it because he knew his kids would love him in it. <laughs> well, he was so. doing it for both. It was a good. It was a yeah. role that would pay well, and his kid his kids would love to see it. But, but yeah, you know the reason behind his performance was specifically so his kids would yeah get yeah. out of it. Uh, yeah, I'm tr- I'm trying to th- like one one of the things with games is that like I icon- uh, quote unquote iconic roles in games have not been around long enough to really reach a point where like someone is being maintained as part of a cast long after that should have they should have stopped. Uh, hmm. we are actually, and this might have helped inspire the question. There is currently question over whether Charles Martinet has been recast for Super Mario Brothers Wonder, hmm. uh, because the voice clips are definitely new, but it's unclear if they're new Martinet recordings and he just sounds different because it's been you know quite a long time, or if they're new if they sound different because. They're a different person, but yeah. I mean, there, there, go, there is. Okay, so going at a slightly different angle for the question that you just reminded me of. In Japan, when a mm-hmm. voice actor is hired to do a character, or in some cases is hired to be a specific actor in for Hollywood yeah, dubs, they they tend to hold on to that role in perpetuity. Yeah, unless it was like, like um, yeah. I mean, even if the character ages massively over the course of the show, this is why like Goku and Dragon Ball sounds very not like a forty-year-old man and later in the series. <laughs> yeah, what, what I was gonna say was that like the, the basically the only things that dislodge someone in those cases, other than death, are if. There was some sort of massive scandal uh, that causes people to want to distance the product from the person, yeah. or if uh, the the role in question is considered uh, minor enough, or like the the yeah, amount of it, voice is limited enough. That... Even then, I, I remember I remember hearing about at least one Super Robot Wars game where. Um, 
what at least one of the series that was included in that game was so obscure that they actually went and they dug up the voice actor for this one role and he hadn't actually had a job in the industry since like 92. They still so, found him. I mean, the icon of that is not an obscure series, but it is a case where like the actor didn't do basically any voice acting after that. And it took a very long time to find him, which would be uh, the guy who played the lead in uh, Voltez 5. Which again, who... was a fairly obscure anime at this point. Yeah, it was it was popular in its day. It wasn't as popular as Combatler, which had immediately preceded it. But Tadao Nagahama and Yoshiyuki Tomino were both attached to it, and it did well. But it was it was one of those things that like uh, they he had not really done any uh, roles like that. But what I was gonna say was like when I think about like with games, this is less ironclad. Uh, especially characters like Street Fighter characters have not had a consistent uh, voice cast in Japan. Uh, the Versus games had a different voice cast than Street Fighter 3, which had a different voice cast from Street Fighter 3 Third Strike, which I think after 4, they finally sort of settled out on like, okay, these are the voice actors for these characters, but it actually took them like three or four games to actually get a make a choice because the amount of actual voice dialogue was so limited. Um, yeah, that's that's one of the rare cases, though. Yeah, I mean, some of the major series in Japan, um, like I remember, like three or four years ago, when the voice actress who did Dokin Chan and Anpan Man died, and it was national mm -hmm. news. Yeah, I, I'm not even I exaggerating. It was in fact national news, and there was a national discussion mm -hmm. over who could possibly replace her. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, one of my favorite like weirdo examples is uh, Joe Yabuki of Ashtono Joe. Uh, mm. Was they they had to they 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 were kind of lucky that he liked the role because he mostly went off and became a stage actor actor after that and didn't really do voice acting after Ashtono Joe. <laughs> but he liked the role, so they could get him back if they ever needed him to do new lines for like a movie or something. But. Yeah, the, the the voice actor for for Joe Yabuki uh, was pretty much uh, set in stone for whenever they brought that w would bring that back for like some new compilation movie or whatever. And then, of course, uh, there's the fact that there was a ten year gap between Ashinojo and Ashinojo Two in terms of actual production, but they where he had not really done voice acting in between, but they could get him back because oh, I like being Joe. <laughs> but yeah, it's a it's 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 a weird one. Uh, but yeah, I uh, yeah, I'm trying. I, I can't really think of anyone that's like really obviously too old for their role in many games. Uh, in oh, one of the major factor series that there aren't that many series that have voice acting that have been around long enough for this. Yeah, issue. yeah, it's gonna. We might it's be gonna seeing take... more of this in the future. Yeah, I think within and the next ten more years, for the Japanese industry. I think within the next ten years, we're gonna see at least some of this. But mm -hmm. for for now, we're still in kind of that period where it's like, yeah, most of them are still probably young enough to make it work. We almost got this. Uh, uh, way back in the day when there was <laughs> there was going to be a 
a Dirty Harry game for the PS3 and Xbox 360 uh, that got pretty far along in development and got uh, canned, but they had gotten Clint Eastwood signed on to do voice work for the game. And it was one of those things where it's like, man, you're like well into your 70s. You're gonna, you're just gonna voice Dirty Harry in like a video game in like 2010. Mm-hmm. That's not gonna sound right. <laughs> no, because it was supposed to be a game that took place between Dirty Harry one and two. It's very, yeah. It's probably fine that that didn't end up getting to happen. <laughs> but yeah, so. But yeah, that's uh, it'll be interesting and kind of sad to see that happen. Uh, How big of a hit must a 007 game be in this day and age to be able to justify its production cost and licensing fees? How many people would pay fifty to sixty dollars for a three to five hour James Bond game? Because as I see it, after playing a bunch of Bond games any longer, and the plot becomes wobbly. Uh, I think that there's ways to make that work. Uh, in part, if you just track back to Ian Fleming's original stories, not the parts where James Bond is just kind of a whiny weirdo, but uh, the parts where a lot of them are like anthologies of shorter stories that don't connect. You can mm-hmm. potentially lengthen the amount of like plausible James Bond action you can put into a game by just making it so that like you're doing a bunch of smaller missions rather than one big that, mission that that's has to a, connect. That's a mission-based game structure right there. Yeah, but uh, I, I think that like one of the issues you that we've run into at this point is that like when when you're asking someone to spend sixty, seventy dollars on a game, you're probably going to need to have probably closer to at least eight hours of content before people start being mostly okay with it. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. It's just kind of, it's how consumers have been conditioned. And so also depends on what the gameplay loop is like. And if, for example, if you have good multiplayer, like GoldenEye had back in the day. Yeah. Good, good multiplayer will help a lot. If that's uh, something that can be managed. I know that the current James Bond game, is being developed by IO interactive who did, the Hitman games, and I feel like if they bring that sort of structure to it, there's potentially a lot of... Uh, I, was, I was just thinking of Hitman, yeah. Yeah, it's the same developer currently has the Bond license, and I feel like if they bring that structure to it, they can probably... Because, you know, the, the fun thing about Hitman is that, like, you've got, you know, a, about a dozen missions, but you've got, like, you know as many ways as you can think of to actually approach them. And I think that would make a good, if you throw in some bond gadgets and uh, that sort of spy thriller shit, you can probably make a, you can probably do sort of best of both worlds, a game that you could uh, plausibly get through in that like five to six hour time frame. But if you really want to like see all the different ways you can approach a mission, you can, you know, extend that significantly. Oh, I, that would be my my sort of expectation for what you know. It was it was a good pickup, a, a good pick of developer to to make that work. I think. Yeah, um, I, I had no idea, or no idea what was going on with that series. Anyway, it's just the first I've heard of it, but 
Mm. The Hitman guys are making it, then this sounds like a good match. Yeah, it was. It was Hitman is basically like a parody of James Bond to begin with. Definitely um, got uh, elements of it. Yeah, uh, but yeah, like the the yeah, it was it was announced a couple of years ago that they had acquired the license and we're putting a James Bond game into development. So I don't blame you for not having heard about that because it was really just a, yeah, we acquired the license. Talk to you in a few years. <laughs> and not a genre or studio that I'm very interested in to begin with. Yeah. But yeah. Good, uh, good eye, good call for uh, correct uh, for a good studio for it. Um, let's see. Continuing with the James Bond thing, playing everything or nothing and from Russia with love back to back with Metal Gear Solid and Splinter Cell games makes me realize that they were the the most liked spy games are always structured in a way that you could cut the gameplay away and make a good self-contained movie from the cutscenes. It's a kind of story and gameplay structure of MGS5. Is it impossible to make a good movie out of it? Uh I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's gonna be a very different movie than you would make out of MGS3. Because MGS3 is, uh, I bring up 3 because it's the one that's the most self-consciously in the James Bond mold. Like, they, you know, Snake Eater is a James Bond-style theme song, and it's definitely the only game in the franchise that has that. Uh, but uh, I think that MGS5 wasn't suited to that kind of story because the kind of story it was telling, you know, accounting for the fact that it's a somewhat incomplete story, but even if it was complete, the kind of story it was telling was not conducive to a particularly traditional narrative structure. Mm-hmm. So, you because it was, you know, it was a game about sort of wrapping up thematic uh, loose ends that existed throughout the Metal Gear series. Like, it has a bunch of different like things that are sort of endings for different aspects of the series or uh, answers to like thematic questions raised by different parts of the series uh, from uh, the gameplay from the cutscene that basically no one ever legitimately saw where you had to where if the uh, if every uh, nuclear weapon on your uh, server was successfully dismantled there was a special cutscene that would play that was sort of a thematic ending to like the questions about nuclear proliferation that flowed through the series. There's uh, an ending that's sort of a uh, thematic endpoint to the notion of uh, the player uh, the player's contributions to the story versus the scripted contributions to the story. There's uh, places that there's an ending that sort of uh, is the thematic endpoint of the question about uh, sort of what it means for a game to bait and switch you on who the main character is. Uh, there's there's a lot of these little endings, and that's kind of the point, is that it's a game that's mostly little tie-ups rather than a grand narrative unto itself. There's a story within it of uh snake versus the uh xof and you know us uh black ops and skull face but they're 
it's it's mostly just a narrative glue that ties together all of these other like thematic underpinnings. Uh, uh, Smoking Joe asks, were the Austin Powers games any good? And I feel like I should just say you know the answer to that, and the answer is no, of course not. Uh, there's not even any Austin Powers game that's a traditional video game. Which is also weird to think about because, like, there's Austin Powers Pinball, which is <laughs> yeah, take your guess. Uh, there's Welcome to My Underground Lair slash Oh Behave, which was a pair of Game Boy Color games that could interact with each other in some weird fashion. But there are many game collections that also take the form of like weird parodies of old computers. They're really weird. Um, there's there was never an attempt to do like just a straight adaptation of Austin Powers into a video game. So and all the the weird adaptations produced like the weirdest garbage imaginable. I mean, would you expect less? What's that? Would you expect anything less from Austin Powers? I suppose, but you know, it could have at least been fun garbage instead of garbage garbage. True. <laughs> Uh, those were actually made by uh, Rockstar, those Game Boy Color games. <laughs> oh. Yeah, just before they'd hit it big. Um, uh, let's, uh, let's hit another couple questions. One running theme in the Bond franchise is that Bond is old and his methods are outdated. But the films can never dig into it too much because the audience expect Bond to triumph, i.e. GoldenEye and Skyfall. Unless you're willing to burn your audience like No Time to Die. Is there any game franchise with running themes that they can never dig into too much for fear of alienating the audience? Something like Assassin's Creed with its anti-authority quote-unquote attitude and the shadow war between ancient powers beyond the reach of any normal person. Uh, I mean, Assassin's Creed is a really good one just by virtue of the fact that, like... Even the the thing that the core plot was originally predicated on, they can't really make a game about because the core uh, the assumption for the core audience was that the core audience just wants the history levels, and so what was originally supposed to become the main plot, where you would do things in you know the modern era. Uh, had to suddenly shift and become the background plot. And the background plot, which was the historical intrigue stuff, suddenly has to become the main plot, something it's not at all suited to because it's, by its nature, a plot that cannot actually resolve in a meaningful fashion. Uh... Let's see. Yeah, I'm trying to think of... Games like partially this is to do with the fact that a lot of games don't have like a strong thematic commitment, so you end up with this sort of thing not really uh, not not really uh, working. Anything with an anti-authority element from you know. 
uh, Assassin's Creed Persona 5 has to pull some degree of punches because they're made by corporate uh, interests that are inherently authority. Uh, so I would say that's the most common victim of this because, you know, people who make things tend to have very strong opinions about authority figures and the impositions they put forward, but they still work for authority figures. And so, well, the, the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. Um, yeah. But I, I think uh, that's, that's generally the most uh, common of these like thematic uh, defangings. Oh God, I've just been robbed. I mean, are you surprised? No. <laughs> Good luck following. You need to be small. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I need to think of anything with like a strong enough them thematic grounding. Um, I would say uh, this isn't quite the same thing, but I would say that things like like one of the weaknesses underlying Fallout as a franchise that keeps getting brought back is that it because its identity has become so tied in with the uh, 50s Americana parody uh, it it has rapidly become utterly irrelevant and like the the parody element is utterly irrelevant to any anyone younger than I am and was already well on its way out to my at my age and uh, the th there's there's not a lot of thematic meat on those bones because of how much they leaned into that sort of parody element like it, it needs to be able to move on from like haha 50s nuclear future uh, to become something else. It's in this weird state of thematic arrested development. Uh, but yeah, that's that's the other thing I can immediately potentially think of that vaguely fits this criteria. Taking a step further, so many people have pointed out how much of a functional sociopath W007 can be, as well as the delusion of post-colonial British grandeur, his books and movies projected. Is there any game that the audience is required to not think too deep about the implications in order to be able to enjoy it? I mean, most any AAA game has this to some extent. Like, the most... We were just joking about war crimes in Baldur's Gate 3 and D&D &D in general. Yeah, like D&D generally runs into this. Uh, I think at least, uh, you know, 10 years ago, one of the big targets was uh, Uncharted, where you sort of ran into the issue that, like, Nathan Drake is supposed to be, like, a fun, everyman sort of guy, and then you sort of have to ignore the cognitive dissonance of him murdering hundreds of people. Uh, Fireminer brings up god of war and like i mean that's why i can't really get into uh like the, the, that's why i can't really get into the 2018 game or ragnarok is that like the developers really like they they have this weird half step between like 
they they want to draw on the fact that Kratos is like the shittiest human being in history, mm-hmm. but they don't want to really grapple with the fact that he could be unforgivable. Mm. Like the the notion that like he could spend the rest of his unnatural existence working for redemption and never achieve it is not is too depressing for them to actually contemplate, especially because so much of the thematics of those games cleanly maps onto neglectful dads who have spent like five years in crunch mode on a AAA video game whose children don't like them because they've never actually met them. <laughs> uh, so yes. the notion of him being irredeemable and having a relationship with other people that is unsalvageable is perhaps too depressing to bear for them. But it's one of those things that's like, you 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 made this a reboot of a game with a dude who basically uh, out of like rage and an unwillingness to reckon with his own uh, past essentially destroyed the world at least once. You, you can't come back from that as it turns out. <laughs> like I, I'm always going to have in the back of my mind this dude destroyed the world out of petty rage once. <laughs> and then Fireminer says, so no developer is brave enough to make the video game equivalent of BoJack Horseman. Uh, yeah, I haven't really seen a game that tries to go that like that that far into like someone who might even mean well in terms of trying to fix themselves, but you know, has to sort of live with the fact that there's going to be people that will never forgive them. Uh, I've actually been watching. Uh, I've actually been watching BoJack Horseman the past month. It's good, but yeah, that show, as as Fireminer points out, that show has plenty of people who never receive their forgiveness, and man, is it depressing. And it's just like it's 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 depressing, but I mean, it's also. Uh, there's there's something to be said for if you're trying to make things better, the forgiveness is a nice bonus, but it's not the reason you did things. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, I will avoid going further because I don't want to bore people with BoJack Horseman opinions, and I could probably talk about that for quite a while. <laughs> But yeah, uh, let's see. Uh, yes, Druid Leader sucks. Druid Leader definitely sucks. I will not be siding with the Druids. There's uh, there's ways there's ways that you can get her deposed if you're willing to look. Uh, sounds less exciting. Well, if it doesn't happen on the stream, I'd be more inclined. But if that's still happening when the stream is going, then I'm gonna piss. What deposed? No, if uh, if we're on stream here, I'm gonna pick the most violent option possible Jesus for, for entertainment sake. <laughs> oh, okay, you do you. Uh, I generally think it's more interesting to watch a plot unravel, but. Yeah, but I can't really watch a plot unravel while doing a podcast recording. Fair so, enough. Violence. 
Okay, this this next question just like takes a hard right turn. I'm just gonna put put that out there before I read it. Okay. Uh, what if someone had committed suicide at the end of the Super Mario Brothers three movie, uh, Super Mario Brothers movie in '93, The Room, or any other entertaining train wreck? Would anyone still be able to derive joy from watching those things, knowing that the actors were on the path of self-destruction for their the audience's amusement? Uh, some people are better at compartmentalizing than others. I probably couldn't. Uh, the the notion of Human destruction, human destruction can be difficult. Can be difficult. But I mean, like, I mean, like, you know, you know, it's uh, it's, uh huh. Echo. Getting some echo. echo. Uh, uh, just a moment. Uh, is that coming from you? Is that coming from you? No, it's coming it's from Gaijin. No, it's coming from Gaijin. But. We're getting some echo. Sorry, I, I think the computer just went on to sleep mode for a moment. Oh, okay. uh, sorry. Just blacked out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's see. Uh, but yeah, uh, it, you know, like people draw their own distinctions about what they're what they're willing to live with. I've definitely met people who would continue having a laugh anyway. I personally probably couldn't uh, mm -hmm. when it comes to lesser evil versus bigger evil stories do you think the storyteller should preemptively make it clear why the protagonist is the lesser evil or wait until the big reveal recently sat down to watch 24 and that show does the latter to an infuriating degree it's almost like the writers acknowledged to a degree that jack bauer was a bad guy and that the war on terror made no sense but tried to hand wave it away in a very wink wink nod nod way almost like they aren't concerned with making a good coherent a uh, case about the brutality of their side in the war on terror. It, I mean, they they weren't. They like I'm just going to put that out there. Listen, they weren't. <laughs> it's a product of its time, and its time was the Patriot Act. <sighs> still so, ongoing, uh, but yeah, it's still yeah. ongoing. But I mean, this was made at the very beginning of it when it was yeah, very much yeah. jingoism was the feeling of the day. Yeah, to, to to go to go a little direct into it though, like. It was made with the understanding that they couldn't not acknowledge that what was happening was horrifying, but that they had to like pretend like that, that they needed to always. And you know, it was made by people who understood that for ill, the entertainment was often from reveling in misery and bloodshed, and you know, in Chad you know. Destroy like violations of basic human decency. Uh, yeah, and that you know they they were basically creating fig leaves for why that was okay to do, uh, rather than having a serious interrogation of what the implications of what they were doing were. So they, you know, that that, that, that would come that would come in later decades. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so that's why the. Uh, you know, you, it's impossible to reckon with the fact with anything for twenty four other than, yeah, they made a they made a show about like a bad guy doing bad things and then ex post facto justify it with, but look at the plan they have and it's like, yeah, I you know I I'd honestly find it more refreshing if you just had a bad guy doing bad things that would be more honest. But what you um... gonna do? Which TV show was it that had the serial killer who hunted serial serial killers? That was Dexter. Dexter. 
Extra, yeah, that's about that. Yeah. But I'm not going to say something about it. But yeah, uh, there. Yeah, there's a there's a good video uh, from uh, John Boyce on YouTube about the. It just sort of goes into the statistics of just how many horrifying things are happening from scene to scene, from season to season in 24. And just like, here's how many presidents die. Here's how many uh, of Jack's like partners or best friends or lovers or bosses that he murders. Uh, and just like the, the weird... Uh, the the weird like nihilistic attitude that the entire show has, and that's that's an entertaining video that's worth watching in a sort of dark way. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. To move on, on the other hand, considering the stupidity of TV writers and slapdash nature of TV production, there's a real chance that the 24 writers were dumb enough to not realize how bad Jack Bauer was. I think they knew what they had done. But I was gonna say they they were leaning pretty hard into it a lot of the time. Yeah, they they knew what they had done. Whether they had any sense of shame about that is another question entirely, but I think they knew what they were making. Uh, yeah. I'm also a little uncomfortable uh, going after TV writers right now. Uh, support the writer's strike. Uh, never mind. Uh, yes. yes. But, uh, is there any other commercially successful media whose creators did not comprehend where on the moral spectrum their protagonist is? I think, I think every major... Uh, I think most every major medium has had at least a few people where it's like, I don't think you realize what you made. <laughs> but uh, I don't think 24 fits in that category. I think they knew exactly what they made. Yeah. Um, I recently yeah. watched Oppenheimer, and while I don't like all of Nolan's creative decisions, he definitely did not have any delusion when it came to that character's morality. Nolan's never been a, ca yeah. a director that didn't like care to... like. Nolan is fascinated by... Uh, by people essentially broken by their obsessions. So Oppenheimer was a natural uh, call for him, but it was not going to ever be a hagiography of Oppenheimer. No. That's made him such a good director of the Batman movies, too. Actually. Yeah, like ba Batman was a natural uh, lead, uh, a natural thing to go to from things like Memento, where you had like someone who is obsessed to the point of self-destruction. Uh, and, you know, that sometimes that obsession can be good. It can drive them to do great things. Sometimes that obsession can drive them to do some of the worst things humans have ever contemplated. So, uh, but that's, that's definitely Nolan's favorite subject. So it's not surprising. Mm -hmm. I've, like, I've definitely seen uh, games that are at best, unwilling to deal with the kinds of characters they've made. Uh, but they're generally not in games I remember too well, because it's just like, oh, this is kind of a bad story that I don't care to keep in my head. Uh, but... Yeah, I'm trying to think of any that actually, like, I've let maintain mind space, and I'm sure that if I got sufficiently pissed off, I'd think of a few, but I don't want to... I don't want to get pissed off just to remember things I don't like. Uh, so I'll have to I'll have to come back to that. Let's see. Uh, 
What are some cultural products that by their merits are mediocre at best, but still manage to capture the zeitgeist? <laughs> really thinking about 24 right now. I'm pretty sure 24 could have, had, could have only <laughs> succeeded in those years. And yeah, there's there was no other time. Yeah, yeah. 24 was going to happen, as evidenced by the fact that they attempted to revive it a few years afterwards, and it barely made a blip. Um, there's a... It's it's going to depend upon how broadly you define mediocre, because there's a lot of stuff that, like, oh, this was fine for its time, but, like, the time that it existed was also the exact time it needed to exist in order for it to be what, as successful as it was. Uh, You'll see that in descriptions of, like, certain really niche subgenres of novels or movies sometimes, mm -hmm. where it's like, yeah, it can define this particular genre, but the genre is particular partially defined by the decade and country that it was created in. Yeah. So, like, um, like I, I originally read this in regards to the giallo um, genre of fiction from Italy. Mm -hmm. It's a weird combination of psychological thr thriller and supernatural. Mm -hmm. And it's... And at least a few people who write on it are of the opinion that you had to actually have been an author in the 1970s in Italy to really get it properly. Had to be there. Um, Very much had to be yeah. there. <laughs> much like, at least at the beginning, cyberpunk was very much a product of the late '80s. Yeah, American um, late '80s. The like the the cyberpunk that we think of as archetypal cyberpunk in the U.S. is extremely like late '80s to the point where it's like the constant aesthetic choice of Japan has taken over the world is because that's what Americans were terrified of in the late '80s. Yeah, so it's very definitely pre-1989. Um, yeah, like before the so. bubble bursts, when it seems like the Japanese economy can only go up and up and up. Yep. But, yeah, yeah. That, that's, uh, that sort of thing, you know, now uh, really marks that genre. You have to very much, like, strip it to the mm -hmm. studs to get back to, to, to bring up, uh, to make something that feels modern in that genre. I still remember some of Scott's comments from the reboot of Shadowrun, the, mm -hmm. the new core rules. Yeah. Where he was talking about, yeah, I was like, it's sad to say about exactly how poorly this is all aged, but like anything that has to do with corporations caring for their employees. <laughs> yeah, that's also super, super, super dead in the US at the very least. Um... Yeah, it's like, yeah, I mean, guys, uh, reality has outpaced the fiction in this case. <laughs> Adam. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not thinking about that for a minute. Um, but yeah, I think I think one of the issues you run into with trying to pull this out is that rapidly the only like a genre gets forgotten except for its best aspects. So like I I can think of like, oh, spaghetti westerns are very much a product of, you know, Italy in you know the 60s and 70s but they're you know like the only ones you could name are the ones that stood the test of times because they're things like you know the sergio leone pics uh, pictures where it's just like yeah those are you know still classic they're still incredible uh and you you know you forget like the do dozens of other films that are just like yep this was a mediocre western that no one has ever thought of since Mm -hmm. uh, even though it, it did well. And so you, you run into this sort of issue of like mm -hmm. the the ones that stand the test of time are remembered and the ones that, you know, 
their popularity. Bias. Yeah, heavy survivorship bias. Like the ones that whose popularity was fleeting is just sort of like, yeah. I, I mean, like if I were to think of like like this is going to be me being mean and beating on something I've never particularly liked in the first place, but like. Uh, the original God of War in 2005 released at almost the exact same time as Devil May Cry 3, and I'll tell you which one of those games actually is still good. <laughs> uh, yeah, Westerns are another good example of this, where, I mean, after a certain decade, everything is just derivative of the previous decade. Yeah, they, uh, they kind of eat themselves. Yeah. And then finally Except there's... Except for Blazing Saddles, which was designed specifically to kill the genre, if at all possible. Yeah, and you know, shortly, like not ten years after, you you could not get a studio to finance a western. Even that uh, same decade. Um, yeah. Now, now you'll very occasionally see prestige people uh, bring them back. Like ten years ago, there was three ten to Yuma, but it's uh it's not a it's not a ten pole genre anymore. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. Uh, I've asked about the link between the uh, rise of military FPS in America, philosophically waddling through the failure of the Iraq war. Is COVID big enough of a trauma to make a similar impact on American video games in the years to come? I don't know how you would manage that in a game context without making it the entire game. And I don't see anyone... I was going to say, zombies are already a big enough genre as it is, so it might as well just fold into that. Yeah, although those are on the those are on the downturn. People are less interested in zombies than they once were. But I feel Maybe like a negative effect from COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like the the issue you run into is that like most media doesn't want to think about COVID because it's depressing, and there's nothing that anyone can on an individual level can do about it. And also, there's a significant portion of the population that will just get really mad at you for mentioning it exists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so between all those factors, I don't think you're going to see a lot outside of the indie space that really tries to acknowledge and grapple with uh, with COVID and its implications, because, you know, it's it's a money loser as, as things go. So you'd have to be someone who is primarily driven by passion for mm -hmm. wanting to express the uncertainty, the fear, the loneliness, the uh, isolation. Uh, the, the, that would have to be your driving motivation rather than money because, oh boy. Uh, even if it's well done, I don't know how many people you're going to find that actually want to experience that. Uh, what's the deal with uh, recent movies featuring returning main characters that are old? Uh, hobbled and traumatized. Um, the old, uh, you're dealing with a an industry that uses real people and real people get old and, but they still want to see the same faces. Well, I'll let, I'll finish this uh, question and then we'll sorry, dig, sorry, dig sorry. in a little more. Uh, 
uh, Indiana Jones 5, Secret Invasion, Last Jedi, Flash, etc. Is it just a natural thing where the producer is too chicken to cast a new actor in an iconic role? Is it an unconscious reaction of writers to the over-exploitation of nostalgia? nostalgia? Is it because writers under so much pressure to produce contents ASAP, they're pushed to copy each other's homework? I think it's a lot of little things, not the least of which is that when you have when your movie now costs three hundred million dollars, you go back. You suddenly feel the need to like. Well, it has to be someone who has been proven to be able to make that kind of money in the past. So we bring back Harrison Ford. We bring back Mark Hamill. We bring back Samuel L. Jackson. Like all these, all these actors get brought back to uh, do that. There's also the fact that like. Uh, from a creative standpoint, a lot of these people grew up with these older characters, and having these older characters there to pass the torch to their in these new stories makes a degree of sense uh, for some of them. Uh, there's a lot of economic pressures. There's also just the fact that like it's really hard to build up, even if a new star is in something huge, like earth-shatteringly huge, like uh, you know. It, it, it's it's hard to make to build them up to the status that some of these older actors had because they're from a time when like there was a much stronger monoculture so mm-hmm. you ran into this thing where it's like the headliners of a movie from the 80s like there just weren't as many movies to see and there weren't as many ways to watch movies so you saw what was in the movie theater and there were maybe a dozen options at one time uh, if you were lucky, uh, so you, everyone was sort of familiar with that. Like that's why you know, everyone was going to know Harrison Ford, and everyone was going to know Tom Cruise. Those those sorts of uh, actors who are now getting very old, and there's not really a replacement for them because like people's attention has splintered so much. So mm-hmm. the studios also want to just like get whatever last paycheck they can before Harrison Ford is in the ground. And they've they've seen that 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 kind of blows up in their face with Indiana Jones Five, which by all accounts is a perfectly fine movie, but like there's there's only so much and like they already tried to cash out a here's one last Indiana Jones flick where he's old. They already tried that. People already had their emotional moment with that, and they're kind of they kind of weren't looking for another one. Yeah, uh, that's, that's I kinda... I liked. Do you remember the TV series Young Indiana Jones Chronicles? Yeah. Yes. That, that did a much better job. Hmm. <laughs> Strangely enough. So uh, I, I would have much rather have seen that um, again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of those things that, like, you, you kind of run into this issue of, like, you you get the... After people assume they've retired from the role, you get that... you get one big payday when they come back one more time than you expected and then people are kind of people are kind of done because they they already got more than they expected and they're they're ready to close that chapter you can see this uh, one of the most like obvious situations is uh pro wrestling the first time someone does a retirement show huge pop the first time they come back huge pop every subsequent time diminishing returns people just you know don't have much like emotion despair for someone who keeps disappearing and coming back and disappearing and coming back. So I, I feel like the thing that maybe some of these studios don't realize is that they 
they've kind of already gotten all the payday they're going to get. <laughs> like the you've you've used the emotional moment of them leaving and the emotional moment of them coming back, and you can't recapture those. Um, and one more, uh, one more before uh, we'll have we'll also pull one from the the big question list to meet our New Year's resolution. But I think we'll probably be done after that. Uh, are you surprised that the Twisted Metal TV show is better than the Gran Turismo film? I have not heard a single human being talk about the Gran Turismo film. Uh, I'm not the Gran Turismo film. Yeah, it's about the fucking uh, the it's Last Starfighter, but for Gran Turismo, and it really happened. Yeah, it's like it's a biopic about like this guy who joined the Gran Turismo Academy, which is like this program that Sony did in Europe, where if you played real good at Gran Turismo, you'd be invited to try to learn to be a real race, a real race car driver. Let's ignore the fact that uh, there was absolutely a crash he was involved in that killed a person in the stands. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not per se surprised uh, by virtue of the fact that the way that the Twisted Metal uh, TV shows, uh, the way that that was, the the way that trailer was cut, there was basically nowhere to go go but up. Like that was just a really bad trailer. So I'm not surprised that it's better than that. And. Mm-hmm. The notion of like a biopic about a race car driver who plays Gran Turismo is just like not super interesting to me, and like maybe it's more interesting. Like I, I'm not a good judge for this. Like Twisted Metal, I can at least see like a visceral excitement that like there's a lot of violence and explosions, and it's like it's Twisted Metal. You don't expect anything more from it than that. You're so if it can give Twisted you Metal, that would that make a pretty good Grindhouse movie. Yeah, if they were willing to go full Grindhouse, I think it would honestly be better. It seems like it's not quite there, but at the same time, it's you know, it's it's one of those things that like it has a very strong visceral appeal, even if it's not really for me. Uh, Gran, Gran Turismo, it feels like you kind of gotta really care about you know people who do like drive really expensive cars for a living, and the kind of person that cares about that is going to care a lot about portrayal and the actual, and you know, you get deep into like, if you make a bad biopic or like a, you know, a fictionalized sort of biography story, you run into the issue of like, there isn't as visceral a thing to hang your hat on than, you know what, if I sit through at least 20 more minutes of this, a car is going to explode real good. (laughs) But yeah, it's uh, yeah, it se- it seems like uh, you you also run into the fact that uh, it's really hard to tell a story about like look at this look at this guy he gets to he gets to live the dream of becoming a race car driver he never thought he'd be that and it's like motherfucker was the son of like some sort of like British soccer player he was not going to have to worry about his life for quite a long time. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just there's only so inspired you can be by such a story. <laughs> uh, 
But yeah, and and it was also just like, yeah, I don't know, man. Like it seemed like raw hubris to even try to make Gran Turismo into a big film. Mm-hmm. Like just calling it, like there was no reason for this to be called Gran Turismo. But oh, it uses it uses that time where he got in a crash that killed someone uh, as part of the plot. And, oh lord oh lord what exactly it, happened in that crash uh he crashed into uh he crashed into some sort of uh some sort of uh divide divider the car caught air and uh crashed into uh some spectators uh, killing one of them, he apparently left without a, without too much of a too many injuries. But yeah, in the film, apparently this is treated as like a big motivational moment, which I mean, seems was it his fault? Uh, I I'm not given to understand that there was someone else uh, trying to overtake him at the time. I'll put it that way. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's 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 weird because at least in part because like the the writing choice was to try to make this like some weird like it ignores the implications of I got in a crash that killed someone and instead treats it as like this is his motivation to become a better driver. Oh, that's kind of gross. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, that's the bigger issue here. Gran Turismo movie is based on the GT school for race drive. Yeah, yeah. Uh... Yeah. Uh... So I'm going to pull something quick from the big question list. And then we'll probably call it quits for the night because, uh, oh, Lord, yeah, it's 2 a.m. for wheels. So yeah. Let's, let's get this all wrapped up. Uh, Lord, I should not have gotten to it in a fight. I have no spells. <laughs> Could work. You should have maybe done a long rest. Yeah. Uh, oh, here's one guy Jen might have something for. Uh-huh. Are there any songs from games that Japanese people sing a lot in karaoke? <laughs> I mean, some of the yeah, but some of these are. I mean, first of all, you have to have songs that have words to them. Yeah. And second, a lot of the more classic ones are what songs that were that may have existed as J-pop prior to being co-opted by a video game. Mm-hmm. Any particular For example, example, Eyes on Me. Mm, Eyes on yeah. Me uh, was, I mean, it may have been um, commissioned for Final Fantasy VIII, but it was also a J-pop. It was, it was, yeah, it was individual. It was independently also sold elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Eyes on Me, um, what, whatever the song was from Kingdom Hearts. I know I heard that uh, one a couple of times. Simple and Clean. Yeah, Utada Hikata um, was already a huge star at that point. Yeah. So, there are a few examples like that where 
yeah, where they commissioned a major J-pop singer to create a song for the game, and then the song mm-hmm. itself went on to become popular. So, but um, songs that were created specifically for the game and did not have that cachet, a uh, bit different, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it would also, of course, depend upon how nerdy the particular group of Japanese people are. You'd probably find at least a few uh, that would be, if they could find it, willing to sing something, uh, at least in part as a joke, uh, Bakamitai from <laughs> Like a Dragon Games. No, I mean, I mean, um, karaoke places will have these kinds of, they will have yeah. a lot of anime songs, so I can see this mm-hmm. happening. Yeah, definitely. Gotta... Gotta do. Gotta throw in something for the nerds. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, yeah. So that's uh, that's that's probably good to wrap it up for the night. Um, Gaijin, you told you promised me you would tell me about someone in Princesses of the Pizza Parlor rolling a nigh unplayable character. <laughs> well. Okay, so in the Paralogue um, novel, Mm -hmm. which is set almost entirely at a summer camp with no resources beyond ice, uh, like one notebook, and a lot of imagination, Mm -hmm. um, they managed to convince one of their, one one of the other girls in the same cabin to play along, and she's not a very, um, what's the right word here, Um, aggressive personality. So that, but they're like, okay, we can. I mean, if you want to play a healer, you can play a healer. Go ahead, and um, say we won't make you actually fight anything for sure. And then they they were doing the um, roll four, drop one method, mm-hmm. or determining character stats, and figure. Okay, we'll just go straight down the list. First roll is one, 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 two. Oof. This is not even a. This is not even a joke for writing it down. I actually rolled mm. the dice. So that's what I got. The first yeah, roll. I figured that. I figured that you were doing these rolls because that's the kind of thing you do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's. I mean, I advertise it like that. But yeah, yeah um. So and they were just like looking at the dice and like, and the the girl who's running, who's trying to, who's trying to run this game, is thinking to herself, okay, with racial penalty. Um, <laughs> Um, okay, we ignore the racial penalty. We we don't drop one of those. Um, that's still a five. <laughs> still not what, great. What is a five in strength in this game? <laughs> um, uh, and her actual her actual vocal reaction is like, okay, so now we see the um, see the weaknesses inherent to the system. Um, fair. Um, so they're like, okay, we're gonna roll one more time, and if it's just as bad, we're gonna rethink a different method of doing this. <laughs> Maybe we'll start looking into a point by system. Yeah, if we can remember how that works. But yeah. no, the, the other rolls turned out to be pretty, pretty decent. So it's like, okay, so this character is, uh, I mean, pretty tough, um, pre- um, pretty smart, pretty wise, pretty pretty. Unfortunately, she is something of a klutz who can't punch her way out of a paper bag. I can work with this. this okay, is, sure. It's still good. It's still good. Yep. And um, and sort of ex post facto, the, the particular racial, um, particular heritage attributes for this character retroactively included the, that one line from I think dwarves have this trait, where encumbrance does not really happen. Mm, yeah. 
Good choice. Good choice. That's a lot of. Uh, that's not a lot of inventory to manage in a bad way. <laughs> yep. But yeah, the, but the character is also a pacifist healer. So, mm, so it didn't it didn't super impede the play the intended playstyle. No, it just made a great joke. Completely by yeah, accident. Yeah. It's like I'm not sure a... what I would have done if she had accidentally rolled an 18 for <laughs> strength, but that would have been funny too. <laughs> I would have kind of the... That's kind of the fun of uh, having that random element while writing. But yeah, and if you want to hear that and more stories of uh, of attempted role playing, uh... <laughs> and again, pointing out that anytime I actually show dice with a number on them in the narrative, that's something I actually rolled. <laughs> you rolled, with no matter the how ridiculous the results. Um, especially given that one character has a rod of wonder. Um, no. Hey, hey ep- ep- by ep- on episode twelve, one of one of the results that we get on this rod of wonder in episode twelve, um, the the game master's internal monologue reflects my thinking of, wow, I've been wait, literally been waiting like twelve weeks for this to happen. I'm not even going to do any of the sub rolls for this. I know exactly what's going to happen when this cut- roll comes up. We <laughs> We've made a choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yes, yeah. P- Princesses of the Pizza Parlor on Kindle and and Kindle Unlimited by Michael Yadimizu, Y A R I M I Z U. So, nom de Google. Nom de Google. Uh, and nom de Google. But yeah, should, so. that should definitely be a term now because I mean, nom I mean pen names. No, no, there's you need Google names. Yeah, something that uh, that you'll be able, people will be able to find you when they have to when they try to find you the one way that you actually care to you'll actually need them to, which is search engines. I mean, yeah, I mean, I can't even find myself on Google normally. Mm-hmm. Put put my name and RP Gamer together in a Google search, and I still can't find myself. Incredible. Yeah, but yeah. No, give just, that a look. Yeah, it just gets buried under stuff. Give that a look. The paperbacks are still inexplicably cheap, to my recall. <laughs> um, first, sec, first, third, and fourth, yeah. Yep, first, third, and fourth. So, if nothing else, you get a nice shelf piece, and uh, you get to support the support a indie writer and a good uh, good friend of the show, who is part of the show. <laughs> but yeah, so so give those a look. Uh, let's see. Uh, Joe's not here, but I'll quickly plug that you can catch his streams on twitch.tv slash Gamer or the associated YouTube account, which will have archives. Uh, you can check RP Gamer streams. Uh, you'll find all of our, all of our dear uh, friends and coworkers there. Uh, well, not all of them, but you'll find a good healthy supply of them. You're bound to find someone who streams the RPG, the kind of RPG that you're into. Uh, you can catch us most every Thursday at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern. We might be off next week, yes. depending. Really? Yes, uh, we have tickets to go see Bruce Springsteen, but he was ill this week and canceled two shows, so there's always the chance. You can make good next week. Yeah, we'll see. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, there's yeah. always the chance that they'll cancel more shows. Yeah, fingers crossed that you're uh, that you're seeing the boss next week. But yes. uh, 
Born to run. Uh, but yeah. Um, but yeah. But yeah, you can catch us on twitch.tv slash askwheels. Sometimes we'll also stream to RP Gamer during this. Uh, uh, but you know, you're always guaranteed to see it on Ask Wheels. You can ask us questions. You can ask us questions in the comments section that I just realized. Shit, I didn't actually look. I will check next time. I promise. Uh, I don't think there's anything there this time, though. Okay, thank you. Uh, but yeah, um, or you can ask us via the podcast section, the Discord, like dear friend Fireminer did. Thank you so much for all the lovely questions. Uh, you can also ask us via the chat, like Fireminer and Smoke and Joe did this week. Thanks for uh, if you can catch us while we're uh, broadcasting. And you can send us questions via social media if you can find us. Uh, I am on co-host Blue Sky Mastodon. Uh, uh, I just got on Blue Sky. Yeah, You're thanks, welcome. Wheels. You're welcome. Yay. Yeah, so that's a, a, if you're on any of those, I'm at Fanboy Master. Wheels is at Ask Wheels on all of those. Send us questions via those. We'll be sure to answer them and note how strange it is to receive questions there, but be happy about it. Uh, I can also ask on threads. I think Wheels is still keeping track of that. Uh, but yeah. Uh, otherwise, I think that about wraps us up. So see you, Space Cowboys. See ya. In the way